You are listening to a recording from the Melting Pot Discussion Forum, which took place in July 2022 in Ostrava during the Colours of Ostrava Festival. Welcome back. And for this session, we're going to deal with, I think, one of the most important issues, particularly of the young generation, which is how we can deal with climate anxiety. We have two amazing speakers who are going to take us through this. But before we do, I'm going to introduce them to you. So, first, we have Dr. Liz Marks, an amazing psychologist, whose research interests include psychological approaches to climate change, yes, uh, eco-anxiety, planetary health, our connections to nature, mental health and well-being, really important student health and well-being, which, of course, with the pandemic and, of course, climate change has been severely affected, as well as looking at sleep and insomnia. Liz is a senior lecturer in psychology and the clinical director of the Doctorate in Clinical Psychology Programme at Bath University in the UK. She's a fully qualified clinical psychologist, a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Association, trained mindfulness-based cognitive therapy teacher, and a qualified cognitive behavior therapy practitioner. So who better to take us through the issues of climate anxiety and how it's felt around the world? We also then have Dr. Patrick Kennedy-Williams, who is an uh, HCPC-registered clinical psychologist, a chartered member of the British Psychological Society. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Oxford. Well, you can't have everything, can you? You know, Oxford. Sorry, I went to Cambridge. Um, And he has developed a specific research interest in climate change-related mental health and well-being. He is the co-director of Climate Psychologists with his incredible wife, Megan, who unfortunately can't be here today. And he's also co-authored a book with her, Turning the Tide on Climate Anxiety, which is all about how we can actually deal with these really powerful emotions that we have about the state of the planet. Now, what I've done is asked them all to give a 10 to 20-minute talk, depending on how it goes, and giving you some insights into climate anxiety. We're then going to have a little fireside chat and see if I can find some really nasty questions to allow you time to think of questions to really get them going, okay? So please ask some nasty questions, okay? I'll pay you later. So, (laughs) oh, sorry, you're still here. Um, (laughs) So can I start with you, Liz? I would love to hear your presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for coming along today um, to help us think about this quite challenging idea of the psychological impacts of climate change. Um, And with that in mind, just just to say that because these these ideas and some of the things that we are going to talk about can be quite challenging, it's really important to take care of yourselves. So if you're finding what we're talking about to be overwhelming or difficult, feel free to tune out, even get some air, and join us when you're ready to. Um, And with that in mind, let's all just start perhaps by looking around and appreciating the fact that all these lovely people have turned up on this lovely sunny day to think about something quite difficult. Um, And I'm going to invite everyone to arrive with a little grounding exercise. So if you're sitting on a chair, I'm going to ask you to come away from the back of the chair, put your feet flat on the floor, and just tune in. If you're on the ground, you're already doing that. Um, So just tune into the contact between your feet on the floor. Feel your seat sitting on the chair, maybe feeling your hands resting on your knees or in your lap, and then taking a nice slow breath in and a slow breath out and arriving. Thank you. So I'm going to start with a quote from the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which sums up the scientific consensus on where we are. The cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. Any further delay 
on a concerted, anticipatory global effort on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a safe and livable future for all. Wow. The word in there that really speaks to climate anxiety is the word threat, this very, very real threat that we're facing. And what I want to start with, actually, is to, um, to think about how this affects you. What feelings come up for you when you hear that quote, when you think about climate change and all of the impacts that climate change has had, is having, and is going to have? And I'm going to invite you to do a little bit of uh, audience particip participation. Um, and if you've got a smartphone and hopefully some 3G, you can click on this QR code. If the QR code doesn't work, you can go to menti.com and put in this number. And um, something will pop up where you can put in three words, up to three words. And I'd like you to put in three words that describe the feelings, the emotions that come up for you when you think about climate change. So something like happy or sad or, or whatever that might be. And this is completely anonymous. No one, will, no one will know, but we'll get a sense of what people are feeling in the room. And can we put up the results, please, on the link? Fingers crossed the tech works. There you go. Mm. So what we've got here is a word cloud, and the biggest words are the words that most people have put. So yeah, we can see there, scared. Scared, fear, anxiety really speaks to this idea of climate anxiety. But what we can also see are loads of other emotions. Uh, there's feeling sad, hopeless, anger, angry, worried, disbelief, helpless, not very hopeful, frustration, denial. But I can see there too, there's some hope. And actually, I think a lot of the talks that I've, I've been to today have engendered hope in me. And what this shows us is that we're not alone in feeling like this. And when I talk to people who have climate anxiety, they often feel really, really alone. But I think what we can see today is, is that we're not. And that's a really important part of thinking about how we cope with it. But don't take my word for it. What I'd like to do now is share with you the voices of 10,000 children and young people. Um, please, could we go back to the... Uh, thank you. Uh, from across the world. So um, with some really fantastic research colleagues of mine, we surveyed 10,000 children and young people, so 1,000 in each of these diversity countries across the world last year. Um, and we published these results in the Lancet Planetary Health in December. And it's really, really striking what we, what we can see. So this, this shows us, this uh, colorful bar at the bottom shows us the number of people who are worried about climate change and how worried they are. And what you can see is, so the, the red is uh, extremely worried, very worried, moderately worried, and a little bit worried. So everybody's at least a little bit worried, but six out of 10 people are very or extremely worried. In fact, they are so worried that almost half of them, half of our sample, 45%, told us that it affects their day-to-day -day functioning. This is really basic stuff like eating, sleeping, seeing their friends, going to work, going to school. And this was similar across all the different countries that we surveyed. And it's not just worry. People described really a, a, a wide variety of emotions, just like you, you people did a moment ago. And the proportions are very high. So we're looking at six out of 10 people feeling sad, afraid, anxious, angry, over half feeling powerless, helpless, guilty, ashamed, despairing, hurt, grief, depressed, less than a third feeling optimistic or indifferent. And these, these feelings don't come out of nowhere. These feelings come out of how people are recognizing what is happening in the world, how we're perceiving what we're seeing about the world and how we're thinking. 
So we were really interested in finding out how young people were thinking about climate change. Um, and I'm going to show you the proportions of people that, that told us what they were thinking. So over half of our sample told us that they think they will not have the same opportunities that they, their parents had. Over half think that their family's security will be threatened in myriad ways. Over half think that the things they most value, what makes life meaningful, will be destroyed because of climate change. Eight out of 10 young people think that people have failed to take care of the planet. Three quarters see the future as frightening. Four out of 10 are so concerned about climate change, they feel hesitant to have children. It's affecting one of the most fundamental decisions one makes as a human being. And over half think that climate change means that humanity is doomed. These are really, really powerful thoughts and they explain why people are having these difficult feelings. But I think one of the most heartbreaking things is this finding, which is nearly half of the people who have tried to talk about climate change with others have experienced being dismissed or ignored. And this speaks to something that I think is, is a fundamental problem, one of the things that's impeding the action that we need, which is a socially constructed silence where we feel like we can't talk about these things. They're too difficult, we can't look at them, they're gonna be overwhelming. And this is something we really need to tackle, as I think previous speakers have, have mentioned today. But we went a bit further with this study. We wanted to know how these children and young people were feeling about those in power. And we chose the governments, their governments. And this graph shows, you can see the red bars are statements that people agreed with. Uh, blue bars are when they disagree with them, and the brown bars are they didn't want to, they, they preferred not to say. And I think what's really, really striking here is that more people endorse these, argue, these beliefs about the governments being very untrustworthy. So they believe that governments are failing young people. They're lying about the impacts of the actions that they're taking on climate change. People believe that governments are dismissing their distress and that they are betraying not just them, but future generations as well. In contrast, far fewer people believe that governments are acting in line with science, acting to protect them, that they can be trusted, that they're doing enough to prevent a climate catastrophe, or that they're taking their concerns seriously. And perhaps not surprisingly, with these beliefs about what governments are doing, the feelings that people experience are also really challenging. There's a strong sense of betrayal from those in authority. People are feeling anguished, they're feeling abandoned, afraid, they're angry at governments. They feel ashamed, ashamed of their governments, but ashamed of themselves sometimes too, of our own species. They feel belittled. And what was really interesting is when we looked at the relationship between these feelings about government inaction and beliefs about government inaction, they were strongly associated with the feelings of climate anxiety. So the inaction of governments is contributing to the distress that people are feeling. There was some hope. Some people could report feeling reassured by government actions. They could feel protected, valued, and hopeful. But these feelings were far less present than the ones of betrayal. So what, I, what I'd like to kind of bring out from that is this sense that eco-anxiety isn't, isn't a thing, it's not, a, it's not just anxiety, um, and it's also not a pathology. And by that, what I mean is it's, it's different from what we may see as uh, understand what uh, mental health problems might be related to. Um, Climate change and the inaction of governments represents a significant and chronic psychological stressor. 
But the reason it is doing that is because what we're facing is, is a very, very real challenging situation. Um, so one of the things that we understand as psychologists is a situation occurs and we maybe have an emotional response to it. And what's in the middle is really important. And that's what we think about the, the situation. So there's a situation, there's how we interpret it, and there's then how we feel. In something, a uh, mental health problem, maybe an anxiety disorder or depression, there's often a, a real mismatch between the situation and how we think about it. And the thoughts that we have when we're um, mentally unwell are often um, both inaccurate and unhelpful. So an example might be if somebody's feeling really depressed or has very low mood, they might start to have thoughts about themselves as being worthless or not good enough or unlovable that are actually very, very inaccurate. They don't represent the reality of, that, of that, who that person is and what other people would see and, and say. And they're often also very unhelpful. Those thoughts can often lead people to withdraw, to cut off, to stop doing the things that would make them feel better. And so sometimes with therapy, we'd help people to look at those thoughts and help them think in ways that are more accurate or more helpful. This isn't the case with climate change. The thoughts that, that we're having are sadly extremely accurate. When we notice the things that we have lost and will lose, of course we feel grief. We feel grief about losing things that we care about, that we love, that we value. When we think about the threats that are posed to ourselves and again to the things that we care about, of course we feel scared. That's the rational response. When we see those in power who we have put in power, who we are asked to protect us, lying and failing to act according to science, we feel angry, we feel morally outraged. So climate anxiety is not a pathology. And I think this is really important because I think the language that we use with climate change is very important. An example of this is this idea of a carbon footprint. A carbon footprint was an idea dreamt up by executives in the oil business to put onto us as individuals a sense of personal responsibility when it actually isn't. So I want to be very careful with the term climate anxiety. I think it's useful to communicate with, but I also think it risks becoming, again, another thing that we can blame individuals for. The other thing about climate anxiety is that it is not unhelpful. So it's accurate and it's often helpful. What we've seen in the research is that people who care about this, who are anxious about it, or experiencing grief about it, or anger, they act. Climate anxiety is associated with individual action and collective action of the type that we so desperately need so urgently. So it is both accurate thinking and helpful thinking. However, there are times when it can become very overwhelming. And at those times, um, it may become less helpful and we may find that we, we get burnt out or overwhelmed and we don't know what to do. Um, my esteemed colleague here will talk a little bit about that after me. But I think the other thing about climate anxiety that is actually really beautiful is that what it really shows is our humanity and our care. We care deeply about each other and we care deeply about the planet that we live on. And that is why we have these thoughts and feelings. People will say to me, how do I get rid of eco-anxiety? And I say, well, you don't. This isn't something that we get rid of. This is something we have to understand, we have to talk about, and we have to find a way through together. And that, again, just looking around today, seeing everybody here, trying to figure this out, being interested in it, working together. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. I had no concept that climate anxiety was 
so positive. So that's, for me, it was worth coming here just for that. Thank you, Liz. Patrick, oh, the stage is yours. Thank you, Mark, so much. <clears throat> Thank you, Liz, as well, for setting the scene so beautifully. Um, she probably won't, oh, she, she wouldn't say this, she didn't say this, but there, when that study that Liz and her colleagues uh, published came out, this was sort of September last year time, I think, it was, I, I could, everywhere I looked, I was seeing this, this study. I was, it even, I was watching a late-night US talk show, and the host was talking about that study. It, made, it had such a huge impact and really helped to shape and drive forwards our understanding of what climate anxiety is in a truly global way. So you're amazing. Thank you so much. So it's an honor to be here. Mark, thank you for curating an amazing day. Um, I loved events like this because I'm invariably sort of asked, you're a climate psychologist. What on earth is a climate psychologist? And it's, it's a fair question. And until relatively recently, we didn't really exist as a profession either. So at Climate Psychologists, what we essentially do is we sort of exist in any situation potentially where planetary health and mental health coexist or interact with one another. And uh, climate anxiety, this concept, this emerging concept of climate anxiety is absolutely one of those things. And I suppose our work involves this kind of trifecta of climate well-being, climate information and climate action. But rather than just describe what I do, because uh, I'm kind of sick of doing that, um, what I'd really like to do is to sh spend the time now sharing some of the stories that have been uh, shared with me. So when we, when, we wrote, uh, when we were writing Turn the Tide on climate anxiety, part of what we did for, for the preparation of that book was we interviewed climate activists, climate scientists, and other people who had some lived experience of climate anxiety. And the stories they shared with us showed they're, they're human, these stories, and they're powerful and they're vulnerable. And they showed with us, or they shared with us, their uh, struggles, um, but also their strengths. And they're, all, and they're unique in their own ways. And also what these stories spoke of is this incredible movement of people around the world. And they, they really were international, the people that contributed to this. Um, that they, this incredible communication or community of people around the world who care so deeply, as Liz said a moment ago. So I've used their stories to construct a few ideas of how you can deal with, I'm really glad you didn't call the session overcoming climate anxiety because of course climate anxiety is not something that we should overcome as, as Liz very helpfully illustrated, but ways to manage when the emotional response, the normal and understandable emotional response to climate change becomes too much. So I'm going to speak through their stories today. The second thing I'm going to do, because humans, we love stories and, and, and image-based and visual stories uh, are, are so powerful. And also, climate change has been accused, and the climate crisis has been accused in the past of having a bit of an image problem. What we mean by that is oftentimes the images that are used allow us to, allow us to activate our psychological defenses, right? We, they either are... Um, distant in time and place, or they are so overwhelming um, and non-solution focused that a kind of doom fatigue sets in. And what we've been working on doing more recently is creating, and there's an incredible um, organization called uh, the Climate Outreach in the UK, who have put together an evidence-based image bank of um, climate-related imagery that helps reinforce the narratives and reinforce uh, a future-based, solution-based, and human-focused set of scenarios. And so I'll be sharing a few of those with you as well. Okay. First of all, I mean, this, today has been amazing, and, but whenever we're engaging with the climate crisis, it's kind of like we're sort of we're oscillating between all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of different emotions. We're, we're told about the challenges, and then it's like ugh, adrenaline, scarcity. And then we're over here, we hear about the solutions, and that activates our dopamine, and we start to think about all the things that we can do. And we kind of find ourselves in this kind of emotional roller coaster. And so all I want you to do now and, and it, it, we've done a little bit of grounding already, I want to do a bit more grounding again, is just as you did before, feet 
on the ground, coming away a little bit from the seat. I invite you to close your eyes as well, if it feels comfortable to close your eyes. And again, just take the emotional temperature for a moment. Just asking yourself this question, what, what emotions am I experiencing right now? What thoughts are going through my mind? And we're not trying to change these thoughts in any way, shape, or form, or these experiences, but just noticing them as they are. And then I want you all just to think of a time over the, over the past week, a time when you've done something, however small that thing may have been, you've done something that has been about your own well-being or the well-being of the planet. Just one little thing. And just give yourself a moment to acknowledge that thing that you've done. Okay. Excellent. See, I know this form, the fact that you're all sitting here, I know this is a room full of people who are doing what they can. Okay, I know that already. And actually, we can get a bit stuck in this idea of having to talk about all the things we have to do. And there's a huge amount we have to do. But that can sometimes come at the cost of acknowledging what we're doing already. And because the climate crisis is a marathon and not a sprint, we need to regenerate ourselves. We need to nourish and restore ourselves on this journey. And part of that is about giving ourselves the due credit for every little thing that we do. Okay, so number one, I'm going to, so all these quotes come from people who, who, have, who have contributed to the book. Some, have, some remain anonymous and some you'll see their names. And I've coded them into this. Number one, understand and validate your emotional experience. This person said, I imagine there are real parallels between climate anxiety and the emotional experience of losing someone close to you. An initial emotional shock when you hear the news, an immediate period of despair where you try to rebel against this new reality, and then a long, slow grieving process as you attempt to accept a world that looks very different from the one you wish it did. Liz, is, the, the, the exercise earlier where you've got your phones out highlighted the, the broad range of emotions that we experience in, in, in relation to the climate crisis, and you're, you're just not alone. And actually, some of, these relations, some of these emotions can be truly helpful. We need to move away from the idea of thinking about emotions as being good or bad. Emotions just are. They just are. And, but what they can do is serve as useful evidence and information to kind of shine a light on our values and what's important to us. I've heard people say time and time again, a little bit of climate anxiety is a good thing. It connects us to the things that are important. And that leads us to connection. This is something that time and time again, people have told us is essential to survive emotionally in, a, in the climate space. So we've, we've done a lot of work with Mitzi, who's, who's fantastic. She said, as part of this interview, it's like a form of solidarity. And these are friends that are all across the globe. My friends are, in, are from India and the Netherlands, and we've never met. We only see the top half of each other's bodies. That's a reference to Zoom, by the way. This was all done during the pandemic. We only see the top half of each other's bodies, but there's this connection because we understand this pain and grief. So find your people. Okay, every, pretty much every single person I've spoken to who has an experience of climate anxiety says you need to find the people around you that you can connect with. And also connect with the natural environment as well. So find a little corner of the natural environment uh, and go there and be there. As well as connecting, we also have to disconnect. And this can be a hard sell sometimes because when the stakes are this high... We want to be doing everything we can all the time, but it's just not sustainable. This person said to us, I used to read every environmental news article published. I've realized that these just feed anxiety and very rarely tell me anything significantly new. And so I find that avoiding these stories or significantly reducing my engagement in, with them has helped my climate anxiety. This was a really interesting experiment for this person because they assumed that knowledge is power. The more I know, the more helpful I can be. But actually, there's a pretty steep curve. Interestingly, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the World Health Organization, one of the first pieces of, of, of uh, uh, the first recommendations they made was to say, keep your information about COVID to that which is localized and relevant to your day-to-day. -day. And the reason they said that was because there was a huge level of overwhelm. Actually, give yourself permission to switch off. Choose your news sources very carefully. Devote a certain amount of time in the day to doing so. 
And then give yourself the permission, particularly at the weekend, particularly in the evenings, give yourself the permission to switch off from this. Climate perfectionism. When we hear a word like perfectionism, we assume it's a good thing. Uh, But it isn't. So this is from Isaiah, who said to us, for me, it's essential that I'm creating positive spaces where I acknowledge my imperfections. Transparency is so important. We need to shift that landscape and culture that's heavily glorified with perfectionism into this imperfect, organic flow of emotion and work that blossoms into reality. That's where activism can thrive. So what he's saying here is we have to accept the imperfect. When perfectionism leads to procrastination, perfectionism leads us to stop, start, uh, to, or it will even prevent us from starting what we want to be doing. Lots of people who contact us are saying, I want to do this, but A, I'm not sure how to get started, and B, I'm really worried that what I do isn't going to be enough. So at an individual level, we have to embrace imperfection. We want millions of people doing, taking climate action imperfectly rather than a few people doing it perfectly. Also, this happens at governmental and business level as well. One of the really interesting things about greenwashing, right, when companies will, um, will uh, over-portray their green credentials, one of the really interesting things about greenwashing is oftentimes companies will say to us, well, how can we present what we're doing if it's less than perfect? Right, really, really interesting. So what they're saying there is climate perfectionism is preventing us being transparent about the climate actions we're taking. We're not carbon neutral yet, so we can't really tell people what we're doing, but we're trying to do everything we can. So climate perfectionism exists on an individual level, but also at an organizational level. And beware the myth of individual accountability. Liz, talking, you talked excellently earlier about the idea of a carbon footprint. What, what, is, that, what is that saying? That's placing the, the responsibility on the individual. Okay, and you alone didn't cause this problem. And you have to remember that. You have to remember that. And the solutions that need to exist will be at individual level, but they'll also exist at governmental level. They'll also exist at corporate level. Okay, so it isn't all on your shoulders. This person said, really try to understand that while there is a lot you can do to help tackle climate change, this mess is not your fault and that you need to take care of yourself and act within your limits which leads us to, I think, probably the most important idea for anybody who's taking any step, even just a little one, towards the climate, in the climate space, looking after yourself. This person said to us, I believe, or began to really internalize that I can't help the world if I'm not taking care of myself, and began to view self-care as radical, important work, rather than something to feel guilty about. So each and every one of you, just take a think, take a moment, just hold in your mind what self-care looks like for you. For some people, here's Mitzi again, she told us, I love this quote, she told us, that self-care is about maintaining a schedule, right? This is someone who, for the, if, if those who aren't aware, incredibly active on a global scale in the climate space, right? Uh, and a representative of uh, MAPA regions in the global south. And she talked to us about, about the fact that she realized she, she needed to stare at her goldfish for 30 minutes every day. And that, that was essential self-care work for her. And so she scheduled it in. So every day she would write in her pl- diary, stare at my fish, right, for 30 days. She still does this. And that for her is what she needed to do. That was part of her self-care plan. But for her she, and, and for all of us, you need to schedule it in. Talk about how, climate, how the climate crisis makes you feel. So this person said, talking about how I was feeling with those close to me was enormously reaffirming because at no point did I have anyone tell me that I was, what I was feeling was stupid or unreasonable. Climate anxiety can feel very lonely, as Liz said. Getting recognition that what I was worried about worried other people too, and that my worries were justified, and that I wasn't alone helped strip away some of the contributing factors that made managing that anxiety difficult. I'll tell you two reasons why talking about climate change is important. Firstly, from a well-being perspective, we've seen the emergence of things like climate cafes and other forums where people can start to talk about their emotional experience of climate change, and this is, this is, this is crucial. But also, what's happened is 
Since perhaps 2019, the climate crisis has entered into what we call the Overton window, which is the window of acceptable public discourse, okay? What that means is, over these past few years, ideas that would have been considered radical and unthinkable now are considered important and central to the public conversation. What that has then done in turn is it's starting to shift governmental behavior and um, policy and organizational behavior. And exactly the same thing is starting to happen now with our, when it comes to our, our psychological responses to climate change. Governments are paying attention. Organizations are, are paying attention. We're getting contacted all the time by companies saying, we've got our climate policy over here and our well-being policy over here, but now everyone's telling, now all our new staff are coming into the company and saying, well, these two things need to, need, to be, need to be joined together. Climate and well-being are very much intertwined with one another. So talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Nurture active hope. Hope's a word that I'm, I was so pleased to hear hope coming up so many times today. I don't know if anyone, if anyone knows, I, I love, this is my favorite quote, I think, of all time. Sadly, he didn't say it to me directly. The sustainability revolution is unstoppable. Whenever I hear that sentence, I feel a sense of community. I feel a sense of power and collective agency. It was Al Gore who said that. Sadly, not to me, as I said. But actually, when we, when we were um, speaking with people for, uh, for the book, we found messages of hope time and time again. And it, as long as the hope is active in the sense of non-complacency, hope is an incredibly motivating and powerful emotion that we need to be nurturing whenever we can. Pass the mic. This again was Mitzi when she spoke to us. One of the key things she said is if you find, if, and for those who aren't aware, MAPA is uh, most affected people and areas. What this is basically saying is that we talk about the climate crisis. We need to think about the climate crisis as being truly intersectional. The climate crisis is a human, is a, is a human issue. It, it Pre-existing marginalization that's existed in post-colonialist ideas are very much intertwined with climate change. What that means is that those most vulnerable to the, to the, to the changing climate are disproportionately affected, having caused uh, the least amount of, of the damage. What that also means is they're likely to be marginalized from the conversation and marginalized from the conversation around the emotional impacts as well. And the solution to this is to any opportunity you have, hand the mic over to somebody from MAPA regions um, and essentially fight alongside. Be with, as you said, as Mitch said, be with us while we do this. We need you by our side. Become your own activist. So people, for some people, direct action is a fascinating conversation on this stage earlier about direct action. For some people, direct action um, and nonviolent protest is their route to activism, for other people less so. For some people, th their, their form of activism might involve their purchasing power. It might involve coming and speaking at an event. We can be activists in all kinds of different ways. There, when it comes to finding your little corner of this, there are three areas to ask yourself, okay? Number one, where do I have, or where can I have the greatest impact? What gives me a, the greatest sense of meaning? What do I really care about? And in the nicest possible way, what are you gonna find easy, right? For me, the, the, the idea of mixing my professional training as a psychologist and environmentalism, which I've cared deeply about for years and years and years, was an obvious one because I had that, I'd already done that bit, so I merged the two together. So when, it, when you kind of ask yourself that question, what kind of, what should my climate action look like? Ask yourself, where can I have the greatest impact? What gives me the greatest sense of meaning? And what's already within my skill set? This, okay, some, somebody sent this to me the other day. So we'd, we've, done, we've been doing some work in the Philippines uh, with a school there uh, around kind of climate anxiety. And uh, shortly after that, that work was finished, I was emailed by their psychology teacher, and she said, one of our students, um, after, the, after this work that we did, one of our students has created a graphic novel. Would you like to see it? 
And they sent it over to me, and this, this student whose name is Yume was very uh, was as happy for me to sort of disseminate this as much as possible. She sent me that. I'm just put a few slides in there. Sent me this incredible graphic novel that she had done all about eco anxiety. This was an, this was a girl, high school girl, who had found something that she cared very deeply about, has a clear talent, um, and and has found eco anxiety as her corner that where she can have the greatest impact. So this was such, this was such a, an incredible moment to see this. Um, and a, a sort of a great example of having found that little corner that she can contribute to. Really, really incredible. These are mine. That's my son on the right there. He actually, he co-facilitated a workshop with me. That's him co-presenting with me there. Uh, he got paid, I paid him 20 pounds. Uh, we did a workshop for kids. And that on the left is a, a drawing that our daughter did uh, of not, that's Megan, by the way, not me. Um, and this, this is where I feel that sense of meaning, right? This is, what, this is what helps alleviate my climate anxiety, is when I think about the things I'm trying to do now um, for them, for their future. And when I see them ad adopting a, a sense of environmentalism, when I see them understanding these concepts, uh, it really helps me. So, I'm gonna stop now. But what I'm going to do is ask you this question. I'm going to leave you with this question. Really think about it. So what sustainable commitment can you as an individual make this week? And that, that might be a commitment that's sustainable for yourself in your own well-being, or it might be a commitment that's sustainable to the planet, or perhaps even, even better, a combination of the two. But just hold that idea in mind. Make that little dedication to yourself in your mind. Um, as we go on with the rest of the session. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Patrick. It is always a pleasure to listen to you, and I always feel much better having listened to you. A um, couple of quick questions for you, and then opening up to the audience, so I'm waiting for those killer questions. Um, Liz, your study was... Incredible. I mean, it, uh, uh, Patrick was right, it was everywhere. I mean, it was picked up by right-wing media groups, left-wing, it was picked up by parents, not realizing the huge anxiety there is out there. Um, now we know that, how can that actually help us? How is that going to galvanize how we engage with young people and also the climate change agenda? Is it going to be useful? I hope it's going to be useful. Um, I think so. I think, um, I mean, I did that study with a whole whole team of, of really fantastic people, and afterwards, um, we, we had a lot of we had a lot of that media interest, but we also got emails from young people around the world saying, "Thank you so much for doing this study." I thought I was the only one who felt like this, and I know I'm not, and I know I can talk about it, and I, I think we really shouldn't underestimate. The power that that we have by by talking about how we're feeling and using that to to influence those people who do have more power. I think you know. I think a lot of younger people potentially feel more concerned, partly because they've got more stake in the future, but also because they have less agency to to make those changes. So I think raising awareness, as you say, you know, this affects us regardless of our political stance, uh, regardless of where we are in the world, it is going to affect us. And if we um, raise that awareness and recognize this is an issue we need to deal with, then hopefully that will have a broader impact. It is a brilliant study. I, I also liked how Patrick said that we can all be sort of eco-warriors, but we have to have time off. And I was looking across all of you and going, actually, that's exactly what you're doing. You're here, you're engaging, and then guess what you're going to do? You're going to run out that door and you're going to enjoy some incredible music and just switch off and for once just go, oh, life is good. So they're doing what you're telling them, okay, which is great. But I have a question for you, which is something that I struggle with. And I know you're going to say it's all individual, but... Again, what does self-care look like? What are the, some of the things you would say to the people here which is, are good things they should try to do just to look after themselves? Because I get told off frequently that I never look after myself. So are there some one, two, threes of what they can do? 
Yeah, well, I mean, apparently, yes, staring at a, staring at a fish is a good one. Um, <laughs> I can't do that. No, I cannot <laughs> stare at fish. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 one of those things that we all we all kind of probably everyone everyone here is thinking. I know what he's going to say, right? He's going to say you should be uh, eating healthily. You should be getting you know eight eight hours of sleep a night. You should be getting regular exercise. But actually. So in a sense, when it comes to core foundational self-care, we kind of, I'm, getting, I'm guessing people will probably already have a good sense of that in their minds. The, the magic is actually doing it. It sounds kind of funny to say, but that's why, you know, when Mitzi was talking about scheduling, right? If you think about any, anyone here who, take, who kind of writes lists, you know, sort of write a list each day of all the things they have to do, bin it, okay? Bin the list. Write, write down a weekly schedule of all the things you have to do, okay? And all the things you hope to do and all the things you want to do. And make sure that relaxation goes in there. Some, some form of nourishing activity goes in there. Obviously, we're both big proponents of mindfulness. Even if you just take two minutes to ground yourself, particularly at the beginning of the day. And then as you go through that, that's, that's when you go and cross it off. And then have a look. Actually, what did I manage to do this week, Right? What have, I, what have I crossed off? And crucially, what have I not crossed off? And very often, very often the things that we don't cross off are those little bits of self-care, those little things that, we, that are so, so important, but we deprioritize. And then that helps you to look and say, okay, this is what I need to refocus on next week. So I'd say core self-care is individual, you're right. It is about looking after our minds and our bodies. But it's, it's how you nudge yourself towards it. You know, behavior change is hard. It just is. You know, forming a new habit is tricky. We're not saying this. Is, if, it, if it was easy and obvious, you'd be all doing it already. So use some sort of format like a schedule to help. That's my kind of key, key advice. It's amazing hearing all these activists are doing exactly the same thing. Brilliant. I have to say mine is hiding in the gym and pretending my phone is off. Um, so you've got two clinical psychologists here who will answer any question related to climate change. Question there. Can you wait for the microphone? This question is perhaps more aimed at Dr. Kennedy Williams, but I was wondering, uh, you were talking about the work with young people and students, and I was wondering how does it look like when you work with these people, especially with those vulnerable, you mentioned MAPA, because I feel like the message that is sent across about the sustainability and climate change is that it's an individual thing and that each of us should try to live sustainably and buy sustainable things. And I think in some areas it can even like um, save our expenses, but in some ways it can be really expensive. So how do you communicate this with the people? Because I feel that they can be really anxious about uh, feeling like it's their fault that they are not able to live sustainably? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think and the answer will change so much, so much depending on where specifically regionally we work. You know, talking about the, now the Philippines is somewhere that is um, astonishing in terms of the um, amount of uh, collect, collective mobilization. Uh, and, and actually, this sort of the, the amount of, and it's no surprise, given that they're you know as vulnerable as they already are to rising rising sea levels, but um, whereas in other in other countries, what we found is that the emphasis becomes a lot more on uh, education, um, particularly in rural areas, um, rather than uh, you know again. So we're talking earlier about how there's that trifecta of, of uh, climate action, climate well-being, and climate communication. And you have to sort of you have to sort of try to marry those 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 three. Um, again, it depends so much on the age of the young people as well. You know, if you're working with kind of primary school age kids, it has to be local and tangible. You know, we, we sometimes use the rule of three three to one. So for every uh, potentially scary piece of information that you, we, a young person receives is to try and kind of couch that with three pieces you know three solution focused pieces of information that tell positive stories um and sh and kind of show positive impacts locally and at scale you know and then as you go up to secondary it becomes a lot a lot more about helping young people to form community 
um, and, and, and amplifying their voice as best as best you can. You know, and especially in a lot of regions, that that voice is, is oftentimes uh, silenced or muted, or they're you know they're actually activism is a right we take for granted here, um, and so. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, again, we were, you know, we're still working all of this out, you know. But we we want to be doing as much as we as we can in the most affected areas. So, yeah, it's a good question. I I also think that what's really interesting is Liz's work here because for me the take home message from that was that young people see government and see the failure of their leaders as a major issue. So even though we feel that we're all told it's our responsibility. Actually, young people around the world, please correct me if I'm wrong, are actually saying, no, 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 no. I'm just a young person. It's the government that should be doing a lot more. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And in, in fact, what we, we have been arguing along with others in this field is this um, sense in which the failure of governments to act and probably related to this, the, the actions of, of large corporations or in actions of large corporations is something that we could equate to a moral injury. And by that I mean um, moral injury occurs when you witness somebody acting in a way that transgresses your core moral values. Um, and that is being picked up, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it's being picked up by human rights lawyers and used to support arguments in court. Um, there are some Portuguese children who are taking 33 governments um, to, to, to court, um, and this is part of that argument, um, because it's a transgression of their human rights. So there are many different ways to have an effect, and it's such an important point. This, we all need to be able to act um, in the way that we can, and this, this shouldn't be something that you can uh, sort of buy your way out of or, or only afford if you're wealthy. There are lots of different contributions to it. Brilliant question. Other questions? There's one right at the back. Hi, uh, thanks for a great you know, performance here. I was wondering, we try, or you try to differentiate between individual level and governmental level, but there might be young people who are actually also involved with the governmental level. So how to deal with that? Because it can be very difficult, actually. You sort your you know, stuff at home and you try to do your best, and then you come to work, there are like three times older people, and you try to say like, climate action is important. Let's, you know, take care about that. And they tell you money. How to talk to these people, if you have any suggestions, and also how to deal with that when you come back home where you try to do your best. Thank you. So just to just to check, I've heard the question right. So that there are how to talk to engage young people in working at government levels. Sorry. If you actually, uh, you know, I'm 27 at the moment and I start to work with a corporation for, with a gas company and, you know, money are way more important than climate action. But at the same, and, but we, we, young people, feel that it's important topic. And it's very hard to cope with the fact that the company doesn't see it that way. And if we just try to, you know, we, we, we see that there are other important topics, except the climate action, of course, there's a, money are important too. But we don't know how to persuade those people. And at the same time, we individually feel that we are responsible for what the company does. And we, have, we don't have that large impact on the, on the way company works, but at the same time, we are part of it and we you know, earn money that way. So how to deal with that? Yeah, I, that, that is a, that's a, real bind, a real bind to be in. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to have for oneself there is that, that sense of compassion of how can we do the best that we can do. Um, I think I, it makes me think of um, somebody who was uh, quite high up. I think it was in Shell who resigned in the UK quite recently, mm -hmm. and you know, it's kind of whistleblowing. Yep. Um, and she she said 
you know, I am in this privileged position where I can leave this job and, um, and I, will, I will be okay. But recognizing there are many people who won't be able to take that kind of action. Um, and, and I think it's a, it is, I, I think that's part of this moral injury that I'm talking about, which is that in order to survive in the way that our society is currently structured, many of us have to work for corporations who, who are causing enormous damage to the planet. And that is, um, you know, it is, it is the corporation's responsibility there to, to make changes and governments to regulate them, as, as was being said in an earlier talk. Um, but I think within that moment, then all one can do as an individual is think about, well, this is right now, I have to take care of myself, I have to pay the rent, I have to put food on the table, look after my kids, my family. And right now, this is what I can do. If there are options to make changes, move to a different job, maybe I can do that. But if I can't, maybe this speaks to this idea of climate perfectionism that Patrick was, was, was mentioning. It's like, well, maybe that's not possible right now. Maybe there are other things I can do. And, and you know, talking to and influencing people within the company, because you never know um, what might happen, which again was what you mm. talked about at the beginning, Mark, is that having a conversation could influence change. I, I would add to that as well. Yeah, it's great. It's a great, great answer. I would add to that as well that um, I had a conversation with someone recently who just we've, we've organised some events with who uh, who said I I used to be well I still am. Uh, just carry on. That wasn't what they said. They said something else. I'll tell you what they said. Um, they said, uh, they said um, I used to, I, I'm, I'm really involved in, a, in Extinction Rebellion, but I've just started working for the, for the local council. And <laughs> how do I kind of, how do I balance these two things? And actually, I can't, I can't be that activist at work, right? But I still want to make, make, make a very positive impact. What she's now, what, what we're now organising is sort of a month of, you know, sustainability events later on this year and, um, I think absolutely what what Liz was saying about about just being mindful of, of the climate and just for, for a transitional period, holding that the fact that actually you're you are kind of wearing two two sort of hats and but actually don't I I, I cannot emphasise this enough. Do not underestimate the influence of young people in an organisation saying actually this really matters. To us, because trust me, the more the more the more heads of companies we speak to, the more we come to realise actually this, this is a this is a um, not just an employee well-being issue, but from the top down, this is a retention issue as well for companies. Now they're looking at this and saying, we know that new entrants to the workforce, young people, are actually saying really clearly, and there's loads of evidence about this up that um, if if the authenticity of the sustainability policy of their company is a deal breaker for increasing numbers of young people. So organizations know that they can't just greenwash their staff. They can't just do things that are tokenistic. And actually they do need to change from the inside out. And one, one nice thing I've, I know a few companies have done recently or sustainability leading companies have done recently is to co-create their climate policy particularly co-create the climate well-being policy within the organization, right? So with, with managers and junior members of staff coming together and saying, right, there's a, there's a new area here that we all need to think about. What should this policy look like? And, and if you can, just, just start having these kind of conversations within, within the organisation. But trust me, companies are really, really, they're listening, even if they don't sound like they are. Yeah. And I can definitely tell you the CEOs are listening to you and they understand if they want to have the best of the best, they're going to actually have to change the company. So I agree completely with Patrick. So we're going to do something slightly different now here. So firstly, I would like to ask you to thank our incredible speakers. And then we're going to do something different for the last five minutes. So firstly, can I thank Patrick and Liz for brilliant talks? <clears throat> and the great thing is, I'm now going to sit down and pass over to Patrick. 
hopefully it won't take five minutes. So <laughs> it's just it, all, all we wanted to do. So earlier on, uh, at the end of at the end of the, the the talk when I was standing up, I said everybody to just have a think, have a think in their minds of some something that they could commit to, either for themselves or for the planet, or uh, or ideally for both over the next week, however small that might be. Now, we were chatting about this before the, before, before the session today, and we thought, well, because we're psychologists, we, kind of, we, we know that if you make a pledge to do something, it's more likely to happen. We also know that if you iterate that pledge to somebody else, then it's even more likely to happen. So all we want you to do before, before you leave is just to turn to the person next to you and share that pledge that you made for yourself or for the planet uh, over the next over the next week and trust me statistically it's much more likely to happen thank you all once again for listening <clears throat>